This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. American veteran and highly decorated soldier Dan Nevins is a professional speaker who for over a decade has shared an inspirational message of leadership, perseverance, resilience, and overcoming adversity with audiences around the globe. His work with professional and business communities enables his passion of sharing and teaching yoga to the world. Please welcome the wonderful Dan Nevins to Health Gig. So great to be here. Thanks, Doral. I thought we'd just begin talking about the injury and trauma you suffered that November day in Iraq is such a big part of who you are today. Can you describe for our listeners what happened to you that day? Absolutely. It's a day I'll never forget. It was the 10th of November, 2004, and we were headed out for a 72-hour dismounted counterinsurgent operation. If you remember your history, the Battle of Fallujah was going on at that time, and I wasn't in Fallujah. I was in that place called Balad, Iraq. But there were coordinated assaults ongoing throughout the theaters, really a turning point in the war in Iraq. So we were headed out based on some intelligence that we gathered to meet the enemy where they were instead of letting them come to where we were. And I remember leaving the main gates of LSA and Akanda at exactly 0400 hours to 4 o'clock in the morning, pitch black, outside, low-hanging cloud cover, so you couldn't see the moon or stars. And I just remember once we turned on this unpaved, untraveled dirt road and route to what was supposed to be our dismount site. Well, I remember it was really silent. The only thing I could hear as my head was bowed in prayer before that mission was the 6.2 liter Cummings diesel engine in my Humvee, which is a very familiar sound to me. My, my first job in the military, I was a mechanic on Humvees. So I just remember bouncing carefully down this pitiful road in silence and in darkness. And then boom, the silence was destroyed by the, the deafening blast that sent my 18,000-pound vehicle about six feet in the air in a ball of fire. And then I remember after the explosion happened, you know, it was really uh, just chaos. I really didn't understand what was happening, and I might have been knocked out a couple seconds. But when I woke up, I realized that I'd been injected from the vehicle, and my legs remained caught in the twisted and burning metal that used to be the floorboard and undercarriage of my truck. I, mean, I really still couldn't see, but I could see a little better because there was some lingering fire from the blast starting to engulf my vehicle. And there was this huge cloud of dust that was starting to descend. And I remember through blurred eyes, I watched my team move with tactical proficiency, securing the perimeter, doing everything that they were supposed to do. And I was the, actually the leader of this team, but I was saying nothing and they were doing everything right. And they gave me a couple of breaths to really assess the situation and I looked forward to the driver's compartment of the vehicle, and I noticed that my good friend and mentor, Sergeant First Class Mike Adelaney, had made the ultimate sacrifice. What had happened was the 255-millimeter artillery shells had blown up right underneath of his seat, and I was sitting behind Mike. So it got all of Mike and my legs, and the other three people in the vehicle, well, the gunner was ejected and landed on the roof, and the other two uh, were just knocked out from the blast. But when I saw Mike in that driver's compartment, I knew that I was hurt bad, but I had yet to really understand the extent of my injuries. So I went to work on myself and checked into my head and 
you know, my helmet came apart in two pieces in my hand, and that wasn't a really great start, but I was conscious, and that's a good thing. I'm so grateful because I probably wouldn't be here if I had lost consciousness. And then I just started checking myself, my arms, my torso. I reached up for my legs. That's when I felt the unmistakable arterial blood spurt with every beat of my heart. In that moment, I sort of knew I was going to die. I knew that was way too much blood. I knew that everyone was busy making the perimeter safe, doing what they were supposed to do. And I just sort of, in those moments, gave up. And I was saying goodbye to my wife and my 10-year-old daughter. And they say, you know, when you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes. That wasn't really my experience. My experience was like watching a slideshow of all the things I'd left undone. And I really couldn't even point a finger or name what they were. I just remember that was the feeling. But I remember the very last one. It was my 10-year-old daughter, but she was all grown up, dressed in white, and walking down the aisle without her dad. And in that moment, I just sat up, and I just said, I have to do something. And I reached my hand into the wound in an attempt to find the artery and stop the bleeding. And you know, I thought it was going to be like MacGyver and reaching and pinch off the artery, but like, no, I'm good, rub some dirt on it. But it really didn't go down that way. I just pressed against the piece of shrapnel still lodged in my femur and prayed that that I'd buy enough time for the medic to arrive. And then uh, it's like I blinked my eyes, and there was my medic, Dan Smee, and then my whole team was there putting themselves in harm's way to remove my legs from that vehicle that was still on fire. And then in a stretcher and a helicopter and then off to the combat surgical hospital, right next to the main gates of Ellis Anaconda that I had just left maybe 10 minutes before. And so I'm a very, very lucky man that my brothers were there for me and that the military medical command, the staff, the amazing human beings that make up one of the most powerful medical life-saving forces in the world were right there and available to keep me alive. And you know, so from there, seven days at Lonsdale Regional Medical Center in Germany, and then ultimately almost two years at Walter Reed Army Medical Center with 30-some different surgeries, mostly trying to save my right leg. See, I lost my left leg below the knee. I'll never forget well, when I woke up in that hospital tent, there was a combat nurse's face right in mine. And I'll probably never know her name, but I'll never forget her face or what she said. She said, Sergeant Evans, you're a very lucky man. We managed to repair your femoral artery. We had to take your left leg below the knee. We managed to save your right one for now, but you'll probably lose that one too. And that moment, I just thought my life was over. Because what can a guy with no legs do? And fortunately, I've had great people like Wounded Warrior Project and so many other organizations and human beings and people stay involved in my life and motivate me and help me see and discover that my disability defined me and that I get to define what the rest of my life is like. So at the end of it all, pretty horrific experience, a long time in the hospital, a lot of pain, and I wouldn't trade a single moment of it. Because what I learned through enduring all that and going through that is a lot more powerful than the cost. I'm actually grateful. Thank you for sharing that story. I know every time we hear it and every time that we read it, it just hits us the same way each time. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Dan. Those first few years after the explosion, you said that you had 36 surgeries. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I had 32 in the hospital. I've had 36 so far. Hopefully I'm finished. You suffered some personal loss, too, in your marriage. Can you kind of tell us about that period? Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. It was the struggle. Like I was deployed from the National Guard. I was a stockbroker when I first got alerted that we were possibly getting deployed. And by that time, I had transitioned into pharmaceutical sales and was building up a career. And How old were you? 31 years old. I joined the Army right after high school, did eight years of active duty, got out after eight years, finished school, got a degree, but stayed in the National Guard. So I was deployed from the California National Guard. And so my wife and I were just starting a new life. We just built an amazing house, like, you know, on a vineyard in California. And then all of a sudden I was, was being deployed and took an 80% pay cut to go back to active duty as a non-commissioned officer. And, and it was hard on the family. And then I had two years in the hospital where we couldn't afford for my wife to leave California to come be with me in Washington, D.C., because we would have lost the house. We couldn't keep it going. So I didn't get to see her very often. And in that whole process of almost two years at the hospital, I saw her maybe four times. And it just wasn't enough. And at that time, I became a different person. And when I tried to reintegrate into the family, she wanted me to be the old me. And I just couldn't be that person. And we tried everything for six years to make it work. And then ultimately, my marriage became a casualty of the war. I look at it now and sort of wish I had the tools that I have now of yoga, mindfulness, and meditation. I'd probably still be married. It's happened so often, so much divorce and broken marriages as a result of combat because it changes people. It changes the way people see, the way people think. And what we all know about with post-traumatic stress is it changes the way the brain operates. And so I say now that my marriage was a casualty of connection, like the ability to actually communicate, the ability to see through all of the differences in the way that my wife and I at the time saw things and approached things. That makes sense. And can you talk to us a little bit about the invisible wounds of war that you are suffering from and that others suffer from? Absolutely. So it's the most pervasive injury from a whole generation at war are the ones you don't see. I tell people all the time, like, okay, yeah, I lost both legs below the knee, but I can still do almost all the things I used to be able to do. I can climb a mountain. I can ride an adaptive road bike. I can play golf. I can do all of these things, but the invisible wounds of the experiences of being in combat and what you see, what you have to do, and just the environment that at any moment something catastrophic could happen. I could lose my life. I could lose my best friends in the world. These people that keep me alive every day, like something could happen to them. And that changes your body and your brain and and the stress response is pervasive and ubiquitous and you're just living this life of of high alert. And that keeps you alive in combat. It actually creates ego around it of like, I... No one's better than me, and I can, we can win this fight. Like, that sort of thing is perfect for a combat situation. And that thing does not serve you at all when you get home. So with the invisible wounds of war, there's sort of different categories. Depression, it's anxiety based on sights and sounds that your brain identifies as something to look out for, that your brain identifies as danger, but it's actually not. Once upon a time, in a combat environment, that open door behind you was dangerous. And now, in real life, the open door behind you is not dangerous, but your brain still perceives it that way. So the invisible wounds manifest 
in that hypervigilance and anxiety and in depression, getting lost in the thoughts of people you've lost, things you've seen, things you've done. And there's that component. And then there's also the component of just not being able to slow down enough to connect with the people around you, to like live a life that's powerful, meaningful, from a place of peace. And it's everywhere. And that's my commitment is to help other veterans and warriors see that that actually is a problem because mostly like, yeah, these are my experiences. I've been taught to suck it up and drive on, suck it up and drive on. And so I'm trying to help them realize that that actually isn't serving them anymore. And I've had some really great success in using yoga, mindfulness and meditation to help people see for themselves and heal themselves from the inside out. What do you credit helping you get started on this path? We know that you're very involved in the Wounded Warrior Projects. So Wounded Warrior Projects, I credit them for helping me see things in a more positive way. They were the ones at my hospital bedside helping me take opportunities to say that, yes, I can go skiing again. I can learn it. It might be different that I can ride an unadaptive road bike for over a thousand miles. I can do these things. I was the type of person before where it's like, well, no, I don't donate to charities because people should learn to help themselves. But then I found myself benefiting from a charity, from a nonprofit that was helping me see these things. And it completely changed my mind about different ways to be of service and how I can be of service for, for other people. And they were at my hospital bedside basically every day. And my biggest cheerleader when things went right and then I got to actually be a mentor in the organization. That logo of the organization is one warrior carrying another off the battlefield. You know, I started totally the warrior on the top of the logo, totally being carried because that's what I needed. And then I got opportunities as time went by to be the warrior on the bottom, to show up for other warriors and their families to say, like, hey, things aren't great right now, and it gets better, and let me help, or let me be of service in this way. So I really credit them for starting me on this path of seeing things differently. They taught me these tools to cope with the invisible wounds of war. And I'm grateful for that. And it was at a point in my life five years ago when I found yoga and my older daughter, the 10 year old when I got hurt was now 18 and in the army herself. And I, my wife and I were divorced and I was co-parenting a three year old, which I couldn't even watch her because I was hopping around on one prosthetic leg and I couldn't chase a three year old around. And I had all that time at home alone and then had to take leave from work. So I couldn't email my team. I couldn't do all the things that I did. And it got bad. And yeah, I finally told someone that I needed help and spilled my guts about everything that was happening and how I couldn't sleep at night. And then if I did fall asleep, I'd wake up with nightmares. And then I'd take a handful of Benadryl and chase it down with whiskey and hoping I wouldn't wake up the next morning. You know, I wasn't suicidal. Like from the 2010 VA report that said that 22 veterans a day take their own life, when I heard that statistic, I never understood it. You know, I was always of the mindset, like, here's an idea, just don't do that. And I never related to it. I never understood it because even when things were at their worst, I never considered ending my life. But in those moments, I finally understood how it happened because if I had to be in that place, in that space for a year, I would probably be one of the 22. And so when I called and sort of started sharing everything that was happening and spilling my guts to my friend who happened to be a yoga teacher, and then she answered 
you know, kind of my litany of things that were happening with, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. And I told her that was the dumbest thing anyone ever said. <laughs> but um, she convinced me to try meditation again. I tried and failed before. And she taught me how to sit in meditation. And I got real benefits from that. And then when I called her to say thank you, she said, I think you owe me some yoga. And I was resistant. And I didn't want to do it. And I'm so, so glad that I did. Because those three private lessons on a yoga mat changed my whole life mm. and taught me the tools not to cope with the invisible wounds of war, but to heal from them. And I can't imagine a life where I don't have the tools that I have now. You shared with us sort of the first time you did yoga and you were to press your feet into the ground and you talked yeah. about how you had so much resentment and anger. Can you share that? Yeah. So. When I first started practicing, I was already mad because I agreed to practice yoga. I lost my man card because at the end of the day, I'm just a dude. You know, I still like to shoot guns. You know, if you Googled yoga teacher, the images and stories that would come up, that's not necessarily who I am. The picture wouldn't look like me. The habits wouldn't look like me. But my first practice, I'm already in a bad mood because, you know, I had to buy a yoga mat and walk into a yoga studio and I felt like, oh my God, this is what my life has come to. That's how it felt for me in that moment. And then I'm practicing and my teacher is teaching me poses and teaching me about breathing and she's saying these things that don't make sense, like root down to rise up. I'm like, what, is that, what does that even mean? You're talking in like yogi, hippie weirdness like right now. Tell me what you want me to do and I was getting frustrated. And then when I'd get off balance because I'm practicing with my prosthetic legs on, she'd say, press your feet into the ground. And I was sort of joking. There's a little bit of seriousness to it. It's like, say feet one more time. Like, stop it with the feet, right? Like, I don't have feet and I'm off balance when she's telling me to press my feet into the ground to get balance. It was a miss for me. And she was right, though, by the way. It's just that it was occurring to me as this isn't helpful. And then after my first lesson, I was done. Like, I was like, okay, tried yoga, didn't work, I'm out, nice try. But then I realized when she had called to schedule the second lesson, and I was about to tell her exactly where to put that next lesson, I said, you know, I realized that I committed to three. And a commitment is a commitment, just period. So I showed up, and it was the same thing again, the same frustration. She's still saying, root down to rise up and I still don't know what that means and I'm so agitated I just said can I try this with my legs off and she was a newer yoga teacher so her eyes were saying no because then what am I supposed to tell you to do with your feet or your body but her mouth said yes and then I just remember I threw my legs off to the side and she was actually behind me looking at me so she didn't really see, and I'm sure she was probably wondering, what am I going to tell him to do with his feet or his body? She was figuring it out, but I'm just an all or nothing, just do it anyway guy. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try a pose. I'm going to try to do warrior one. And in that moment, I was like spreading my knees on my mat. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, then I'm actually going to do it. And so I was saying to myself, well, what is this random stuff she keeps saying to me? Root down to rise up. What does that mean? And then I remember just imagining roots growing out of my legs, like into the ground. Like, okay, I'm really visualizing the rooting down and then rising up with my hands over my head, like the warrior one pose goes, the with, with both arms overhead. 
in that moment, everything changed because I had an actual physical experience with the planet. Like the earth sent a jolt of energy up and into my body and it lit me up from the inside out. And my arms flew over my head and tears just fell out of my eyes. And it was this powerful sense of energy and connection and belonging. You know, in combat, I've always felt eight feet tall and bulletproof. That sort of ego are the things that keep people alive. And when I got hurt, I've never felt so small and so insignificant and so unable to contribute. And then I got better and got my prosthetic legs. And that, I just never really took them off. And like, no one got to see what was under there. Once upon a time, my best feature. And then when they got blown off, I had to deal with that shame and watch these powerful legs shrivel and atrophy. And then the scars that are everywhere. But then I got to cover all that up with prosthetic legs and start to achieve and win again. And so that was helpful for my fragile male ego. But it's like I had to go through that shame and go through that experience of doing it some way completely different, completely vulnerable on the floor and so physically short practicing now on my knees. But in that moment, that energy lit me up. I mean, I felt 20 feet tall and I felt so alive. In that moment, I was like, holy smokes, like this is real. There's something to this. It was like the earth was saying, Dan, where have you been for the last 10 years? And that reconnection, the basic level to the planet, ultimately inspired me to reintegrate connection in my life and in all my relationships. That was a new starting point for me. So Wounded Warrior Project, yeah, they were there every step of the way. But that moment was a very personal, very palpable, very much real, non-metaphoric, just like straight up, that happened to me and changed everything. And then by my third lesson, I was signed up for yoga teacher training. (laughs) Did you ever imagine you would become a yoga teacher? Never. See, even (laughs) when I went to yoga teacher training, I went to yoga teacher training just to deepen my practice. I had no interest, I had no curiosity in teaching yoga. I just went to learn more about yoga. And that yoga teacher training was great because I actually learned there. I mean, I felt, okay, I'm the wounded warrior. I'm the guy with no legs learning to be a yoga teacher. Everybody's going to be looking at me. They're all going to want to hear my stories. And they're not actually ready to hear my stories. They don't want to know what I've been through these weird yoga people over there. They're not interested in this. Matter of fact, I don't want to tell them because I don't want to ruin their day. You know, we had a four-hour practice our first night. And then I remember after we had this homework question, the homework question was, what is something that happened that shouldn't have happened? And I was like, well, I can write a whole book about this. And so I did my journaling work. And the next morning when my teacher, she invited people to share on their homework, everyone turned and looked at me waiting for my hand to go up. I was like, absolutely not. I'm not contributing. There's about 150 people there. And then someone will raise their hand. She was called on. She went up to the microphone. And I literally remember saying to myself when she got up, completely judgmental, I said, what's the worst thing that happened to her? Did she spill her latte in her Range Rover on the way to yoga practice? Verbatim, that's what I said to myself. And 
she gets on the microphone and started to share an experience about her childhood that was so horrible that I instantly felt like the biggest jerk on the planet for judging her. And then I realized, too, at that moment, I'm like, I wouldn't trade the things that I've endured for what she had to go through. And then I just became, at that moment, not the wounded warrior in the class. I became just another human being. And I realized that we all live with the invisible wounds of some war. It doesn't have to be combat. And so that sort of got me out of this notion and idea that veterans were different than other people. No, we're actually all the same. Our experiences are different. And we're all up against the same struggles and the same hardships. And by the way, no matter what the trauma is, the brain works the same way. And so these tools of yoga, mindfulness, and meditation work no matter what the source. But it's still after I graduated teacher training, I had no interest in teaching. Well, after that, I wanted every warrior I know to practice. And I was inviting people to practice and telling them they should practice. And I was getting nowhere. And getting nowhere... Six months later, I was at a golf tournament, and at this golf tournament, I ran into a wounded warrior who actually pulled me aside and said, Dan, you look different. You look lighter. And he said, is that the yoga? And I said, yes, it is. And he goes, I want to learn more about it. And I got so excited, so excited. I was like, can you just come to my house, grab a beer, I'll tell you all about it. And I remember driving home, and he was following me in his truck. And I was getting anxious. I felt like I was a dad about to have the birds and the bees talk with my kid. You know, like, I'm like, how do I bring up the yoga? What do I talk about? And then finally, when we got to my house, thank God, he asked, so what's up with the yoga? And then, you know, I wasn't going to teach him yoga. So I just grabbed a bunch of books that I love, like Baron Baptiste's book, Being of Power. And I grabbed my favorite book, Don Miguel Ruiz's The Four Agreements. And I'm underlining things, and I'm highlighting things, and I'm talking with him about it, and then I looked up and saw his eyes, and I knew something was really wrong. I said, hey, is everything okay? Which is something that a lot of people want to ask people, and they don't, and it's actually one of the most powerful things you can ask someone. I said, is everything okay? And he looked at me and said, no, it's not okay. Two days ago, my, my wife found me in my closet with a gun in my mouth, and I was a second away from pulling the trigger when she opened the door, and my little girl was there. And he just looked at me and said, I just don't know what to do. And the only thing I could get out of my mouth was, you need some yoga in your life. And he's such a better man than me, because where I had resisted that question six months before, he just said, teach me. Mm. So I wound up teaching my first yoga class to one dude in my living room. It was so horrible because I didn't pay attention to teacher training on how to teach yoga. And then I did it. And at the end, I remember, I remember apologizing. I'm like, it's really better than that. And I knew where he lived. And so I found a yoga studio near him. They knew the owner and I got him a yoga mat and paid for one month of unlimited yoga. I said, just go, just go to a real yoga studio with real teachers. And he was going and showing up. And Three weeks later, I got a call from him, and he said, hey, Dan, my month's about to be over, and I'm just calling to tell you that I'm going to sign up for another month, and I wanted to say thank you. And the way he was thanking me, I thought, I thought he was thanking me for paying for it. So I said, don't worry. I got a good deal. I'm so glad you're doing it. And he interrupted me. He said, Dan, I'm not thanking you for paying for my yoga. So I'm thanking you for saving my life. Mm. 
I didn't get it in that moment, but he kept talking and he said, yesterday was a really bad day. It happened to be one year anniversary of the day he lost seven of his brothers in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. He said, yesterday was a really bad day. And I went to go get my gun, but I grabbed my yoga mat instead. So thank you. And then I remember like finishing that conversation, saying all the things that you say in those situations. And then I hung up the phone and I signed up for my next teacher training where I paid attention. And then I was committed to teach. It's still strange for me to say that, hey, I'm a yoga teacher, but it's actually the most important work I've ever done. And I say that as a combat veteran who led warriors in battle. I say that as a dad and a grandfather. And I say that as just a human being who's had a lot of jobs with a lot of nice titles and paychecks and all those things that this work, this, the work of teaching people these tools is for sure the most important work I've ever been a part of. And it's what I'm supposed to do. And if that means it took me losing my legs to figure that out and living with a brain injury every day, which gets better and better each moment, so grateful for that. And if that's what it took, that's what that means, then I'd happily do it all over again to get to the point that I am right now. So what is it about yoga and meditation that has such a powerfully healing effect on veterans? And what would you say yoga and meditation gives veterans and other people that, for example, therapy doesn't? It's a really great question. I actually don't know all the science behind it. I've done a lot of work in that space, but here's what I know. When people experience trauma, put it in a veteran case, and there's so many sources of trauma, even just being in the military, period. Then you add in combat deployments and whether you were kicking in doors or whether you were just present nearby or whether you're in combat support or combat service support, you're exposed to so many things. That trauma lives in our bodies. I never in a million years would have thought I'd be a person that says that because I'd say, how can trauma live in your body? I don't know how, where, like the mechanism of action. I don't know the chemical structure or how or why. I just know it does. When that happens, we get disconnected from our body. You know, when we take it to the opposite end of the stream toward the more severe side, our body actually isn't a safe place to be. And so substance abuse happens, alcohol, drugs, you name it, bad choices, all of it lives inside of that unresolved trauma. When we take the moment and the time to put our body back into true north alignment, to really integrate our body and our, our bones and our muscles, it actually reverses the stress response. When we get stressed out, the amygdala starts producing cortisol and other stress hormones. And then it starts to create a physical process in our body. It shuts down our breathing. It collapses our shoulders. We experience tension in our jaw, our shoulders, and our hips, the primary three. When you actually override that, reversing the process, saying like, no, I'm going to undo this stress reaction in my body by pulling my shoulders back and down. I'm going to take deep, full breaths instead of these the kind of fight-or-flight panic mode, shallow breaths. When you do that, it actually turns off that process in the amygdala. It actually shuts down the stress response. So that right away is an immediate victory on why it works. But then in the moving your body, it's creating endorphins and like positive stress hormones. So it's actually creating a situation inside your body chemically that makes you feel better. 
So short-term, that's an immediate victory. Long-term, for me, on my yoga mat, even starting from the very beginning when I don't want to go, I say to myself, that's my three-year-old self talking, I don't want to. When did I learn how to say I don't want to? But that little child who just doesn't want to is still alive. So I can sort of shut that inner child down and say, like, no, actually, this is actually really good for me. And then on the yoga mats, I practice power vinyasa yoga. It's very athletic and very difficult, challenging, and it's actually amazing. But then I'm in a pose and it's difficult, and I'm like, okay, I want to quit. I want to quit. I want to quit. And then the way I start talking to myself, the way I catch myself wanting to give up, and then I turn on, like, well, what happens if I stay in the pose? That's when something happens and I can free up something or add some ease somewhere or soften and then create this beautiful expression of the pose that I didn't even think I knew how to do. And then it's sort of like it all makes sense. And so my yoga mat, for me, is a petri dish of my whole entire life on what happens when I talk to myself about myself in this way, when I actually start to believe that I can't versus what happens if I believe that I can't. And so I have all these breakthroughs in my mat and in my yoga practice and in my physical body, which also helps me see where those same sorts of breakthroughs and, and victories are in my whole life on what I think I can't do because, oh, well, I'm not good enough for that, or I'm not educated enough, or I'm not smart enough, or I don't know the right people, or I don't have enough time, and all of those things. And then I start to see the way I think about things. And so for me, the yoga practice is a direct translation into taking the tools that I learned there and applying them to my life to really start to create and live my best life possible. And I fail more often than I succeed, but the tool that I have from my meditation practice and yoga practice is the awareness of when it happens. So I still live in creation of my life moment to moment versus in reaction to my life. What I hear you saying is that you not only accept it, but you thrive as a double amputee. Can you describe for us your transition from accepting your life to thriving? And what advice do you have for people for transforming the adversity they face into a gift like you have? When I first got hurt and lost my legs, I thought, like, what can a guy with no legs do? It was nothing. But then I realized through help that I could do things and I could achieve things. So I got to this level of acceptance of, well, this, this is what I have. So I just have to do the best with what I have and move forward. And I just looked at life as an opportunity, as a gift. Like, I'm still here. Like, there's so much more I get to contribute. And that's what I really want to share with people is to realize that when things happen to us, whether it's a, a physical loss, an emotional loss, a changed body, a changed way of being, a deep hurt, that we're actually still alive and still here on this planet for a reason. Like there's something for us to contribute to each other. You know, we spend so much time focusing on the ways that we're different from each other. I'm not a political person, but I see it around election times. Everyone is like knocking everyone down. And the reality is if we just took time and some breath to realize how we're the same more than we are different. And so for me, when I got to this point, you had asked about thriving as a double amputee. Most days I forget that I'm a double amputee because I have so little concern, 
so little fear built around me at the fact that I don't have legs. It doesn't keep me from anything. Yeah, there's not really anything where I'm like, wait a minute. No, I'm just more of like, yeah, I'm a yes for the experience. I'm a yes for the experience of being connected with other people in new ways. And I really don't even consider in that equation. For me, it's just one other opportunity to connect with people in some way. So if anyone's like up against that wall of now, what am I going to do? I'd say that that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to really look and listen to your heart. What is it you actually want to do with your life? And it's a really great starting point to create something beautiful. Amazing. Your ability to actually live the way that you really feel. It's just amazing to witness. Can you tell us the role that kindness and self-compassion played in your own ability to heal and move on? Was there a moment when you're like, I need to work on me? Early on in the physical therapy room at Walter Reed, I was struggling. And this is one of the really great things about the military community. Because when I was struggling in physical therapy and I was in pain and I was learning to walk again, I was hard on myself. And like, why can't I do this? And I was angry that I couldn't do or move how I could before. And then I had looked two mats down in the physical therapy room and see a triple amputee with a giant smile on his face. And I'd say, if he can find a smile, then so can I. So I learned by watching other people who are further along in their recovery than me. If I just give myself a break and just work with what I have, then it will make all the difference, and it did, especially in my physical recovery. I'd be lying if I said it's easy to be kind to myself. I tend to default to, I could have done better, or I can't believe I made that bonehead move, and I still fail often, probably more than I succeed. But then there's always the awareness of, okay, I'm not talking to myself in a way right now, that is actually going to make me any better. It's only going to make me worse. Living my life, I have opportunities for kindness to myself. I have opportunities to give myself a break and to show some compassion about where I am versus where I could be. And those moments, it's what keeps me on this path of discovery and healing. So then what happens if I'm kind to myself? Well, then I can actually demonstrate kindness for others much more easily. And what happens when I show compassion for myself? Well, then I can find compassion for other people that I might not see eye to eye with. So, like anything, kindness and compassion, if you can show it to yourself, it's the biggest catalyst to being able to show it out in the world. So it's paramount importance for people to give themselves a break through acknowledging the successes that they have and then learning from their failures. There's nothing wrapped up in it. You're amazing. We come back. Yeah, we need you to come back. But we have to ask you what we ask all our guests, which is what book you think everyone should read and your favorite quote. A book I think everyone should read. One of my favorites is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. It's a very short book, easy read. You can read it in just a few hours. And my favorite quote, The Man in the Arena, it's a Roosevelt quote, and it really inspires me about getting into the arena and getting the dirt on my face and in my hands, really getting into the space in the work that I want to be a part of. And for me, that's using yoga, mindfulness, and meditation to heal the invisible wounds of war. It's like I have to do it. 
your open heart and vulnerability and wisdom of acceptance has helped so many people and will continue to help people. And Trisha and I are just so grateful that you could join us today. So we thank you. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.